Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. You have a good week, Mike? I had a very good week, actually. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, no official work, so I worked very hard on my book. So I had a very productive week. Now, why isn't working on a book official work? Uh, that's a good question. Maybe I should change my attitude. Yeah. I think you should. <laughs> We're going to talk with an author who I think her official work for the past few years has been writing a book, although perhaps she has official work and, uh, and perhaps not. I don't know. Uh, she wrote a novel uh, about uh, the, uh, the tea house world called Tea House Fire that came out in 2006. Also an account of life in lower Manhattan after the 9-11 attacks called The Smoke Week. And uh, her second novel is out now, and it's called The Last Nude. And will you please welcome Ellis Avery to West Coast Live. How do you do? You're wearing vetiver today. I am wearing vetiver today, as it happens. How did you find vetiver as a scent? My friend Alyssa Harad, who has a perfume memoir coming out in the spring called Coming to My Senses, recommended it. She spritzed it on me, and I was a convert, just as they say. A perfume memoir. It's called Coming to My Senses. Yeah. I recommend it. I could see that you could have that scratch and sniff technology <laughs> for, for such a thing on a, on, a, on, a, on a page. I got a business card once from, uh, from somebody. Uh, where is it? At Archie Comics. And one side was Betty, and the other side was Veronica. And and one you smelled like vanilla sodas, like from and <laughs> and the other was some kind of a mean perfume or something. It was just like you know characters. I mean, it's a, anyway. You seem to like to write about senses and sensuality and textures. Uh, the tea house about tea ceremonies and uh, the role of women taking over that samurai ceremony. And in this uh, new novel of yours, the last nude about uh, sort of the sensuality of, of painting in, in way and dealing with textures, as well as the adventure of a young American girl who turns up in Paris and becomes a famous model. Why, thank you. Um, I was inspired through the senses um, in, when I wrote the book, I saw this, I saw a painting called Beautiful Raffaella in 2004 in the, at the Royal Academy in London and was absolutely transfixed by its beauty. And that's what allowed me entree into the world of Tamara de Lempica. But then what also made me weak in the knees was when I read the caption of the painting. It said that the painter met the model on a walk in the Bois de Boulogne in 1927, took her back to the studio, and this girl became her model and her lover. And their relationship yielded six paintings. And could you slow down on the name of the painter? Just her name was Tamara de Lempica. And originally her name was a, what, a Polish name? It was originally Lempicka, and then when she got to Paris, she Frenchified her name. As, as we must. As we must. <laughs> and so... You said. We. And so, uh, so the, the painter, who's uh, about 27 at the time, in essence picks up the 16-year-old American girl in the Bois de Boulogne, brings her home, and garbs her in kind of a, a sackcloth at first to paint her. <laughs> There's, I, what I did when I was writing the book was I took, I got, a, I got a secondhand art book, cut it open with a razor, spread out all of the paintings on the table and looked at them and made stories out of the pictures that I saw 
kind of the experience that the studio audience is having right now, passing out the paintings. And one of the paintings was of a woman who had a, very, a body very similar to Raphael's, but a, to this model, Raphael's, but a different face. And I thought, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if Raphaela had a part to play in this painting that Tamara de Lempica produced around the same time as she as she met this model. And one of the uh, one of the curious things is there there is this sort of never ending fascination with this era in Paris. We had the the recent Woody Allen movie Midnight in Paris, which romanticized some of that time. In this book, you sort of focus on some of the grittier details of life, the business aspirations, uh, aspirations, the role of money, power, desire how it all played out in this world. I did my best. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful surface, but you have to kind of look under the surface and see, see what's there. You make an interesting jump in the book, too, from uh, sort of the time of the 20s and, and 30s into the present, or, well, the relative present of, of tomorrow's later life. What, so I had, I had seen that caption about the affair, and that really transfixed, transfixed me at first, but then what really blew my mind was the very last painting that de Lempica was working on when she died in 1980 was a copy of that same 1927 beautiful Raffaella. So 53 years later, this young woman was on her mind after they had long since parted ways. So the novel is the story of the 1927 affair from the model's point of view, but then it's also the story of Tamara de Lempica's last day in 1980 making that copy of beautiful Raffaella from, from the painter's own point of view. When you, had, uh, when you were working with these uh, real characters, these actual people, um, did you find any sort of dangers in fictionalizing them, imagining them in some way? Did you, did you want to verify a historical timeline, or did you kind of not care about that? Well, I think that historical fiction writers do three kinds of work. One kind is we are DJs of the research that already exists. We'll sample DJs? DJs, yes. We sample this, we sample that. Everything in the novel that sounds like the product of an overheated imagination, eating oysters off the body of a young girl at a party, sex with sailors by the Seine, picking up Raphaela in the public park, the cocaine, the absinthe, is all from the biography that her biographer Laura Claridge and also her daughter produced. Um, all of that's true. And so that was the, my kind of stitching together work. The other kind of, another, the second of three kinds of work that we do is stepping into places where, there, where there's no information at all. We don't know anything about the real Raffaella, her, her, even her real name, her origin, her language. I made that up whole cloth um, from looking at the pictures and imagining and telling myself a story. And the third kind of work that we do is entirely counterfactual. We take things that are there and we make up something stubbornly different. Ernest Hemingway lost all his work in a suitcase in 1922 and got over that loss and became Ernest Hemingway. My Hemingway character is the one who never got over that loss. And what was the effect on your Hemingway? You, you call him uh, Anson in the book. Anson was the first name of his one grandfather, and Hall was the last name of Hemingway's other grandfather. Deep disguise. Wahahaha. <laughs> <laughs> so how did he not get over it? I mean, when, when, when an artist loses work and then has to create, I mean, there are famous stories. You know, T.E. Lawrence left the original manuscript to the seven, was it Seven Pillars of Wisdom? Um, in a taxi cab, and he had to rewrite the whole thing. Well, I was, I wanted to write about, I have so much respect and gratitude for artists who don't lose their way that I wanted to write about different ways that artists do lose their way. I have one artist who loses her way through surfeit. She gets everything she wants, money and a title. And it kind of, um, it kind of, it kind of, she loses the hunger to create. 
my other artist loses all of his work and um, gets loses his way through loss, and he he can't really pick himself up and do it again. My third artist, who is Raffaella, who becomes an artist in the kind of trivialized and demoted art of fashion, she pulls it together. She becomes an artist. She's successful, but history is not on her side. You have her come from a family of of, of seamstresses, of dressmakers, of people in the in the clothing business, and that she wants to do that as well. Um, did you have to learn a particular craft yourself to practice this, to be able to write about it? I did make my own clothes for several years. I actually brought a serger with me to Japan and made clothes out of kimono fabric that I found there. Um, so you brought a what? A serger, which makes like the little finished seamy edge on the bottom of your jeans. If you t look at your jeans, you'll see that there's like a, a thread edge on the bottom. I had that. I used it. So, so to that extent, yes. Um, I don't paint. I'm not a very visual person, but I did take a painting class in order to write about what it was like to look at a live model for hours on end and, and have that experience of coming in on the second day and seeing it's the same model. And I was surprised by how much love and gratitude I felt like, oh, it's you again. I'm so happy. And I hadn't, I hadn't imagined that I would have that reaction, but I was able to pipe that into the book. You describe, uh, you, you get inside the way the model appears to be feeling of uh, sort of either drowsy or getting into a meditative state or becoming impatient or bored mm -hmm. with the pose or uh, beginning to develop a feeling of cramps or stiffness. I did indeed model for a couple of paintings in my early 20s, and so I remember the boredom and <laughs> annoyance of the experience and would never do it again, but I did, I did learn a lot. And I was were, they, were they nudes? One was, one wasn't. <laughs> And are they hanging anywhere? They are no more. They are no more. <laughs> one of them, one of them, the one that's clothed exists. It, um, my a friend of mine made it for my partner and me for our for our anniversary. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so then uh, you decided that that was enough for you. That sitting still and writing was uh, was enough. But I'm interested too in the the tea ceremony. I mean, you studied the tea ceremony for several years in New York City, and you went to Kyoto and you lived there for a while and studied the tea ceremony, which requires an enormous amount of patience to make a pot of tea. I'm interested in, I'm in, when I write fiction, especially fiction about art, I think I access it through the body. And so the way that it feels to hold your hands and your shoulders when you're making a ceremonial bowl of tea or the way that it feels to walk down the street in kimono and you know you're kind of holding the little flap as you go very you know you, that's why they've got their hands this way in fact that's why um the there's a kind of japanese pigeon toed walk um or a pigeon toed way of standing you'll see in certain photographs and that's because the mothers and grandmothers and great grandmothers great great grandmothers long ago the people who were wearing kimono that's how you keep your kimono closed oh yeah yeah so i got to i get to I, I like learning about all those kinds of crazy things, you know? Why wouldn't they have figured out like a belt or uh, <laughs> buttons or... I don't know. That would get in the way of the pattern. I, I suppose so. Uh, when you write about painting, uh, you, you write about the texture of the brush as a point at which you describe the act of, of painting, of putting paint on, uh, colors on. Were there favorite colors that you like to work with to imagine in, in your sort of literary palette? 
I think green is a great color since you ask. And I love the greens that Tamara Delempica used. They're kind of jewel-like and luminous. And I got to use, this is such a great question. I got to use green at the very beginning in the first scene in the Bois de Boulogne where Raffaella encountered Tamara in the green Bugatti. And I get to use green at the very end when Tamara is reflecting on a copy of Raffae beautiful Raffaella against a, a green background that she made and perhaps regretting certain things that she did and failed to do. For my part, I couldn't help noticing the jewel green motor car parked on the grass up ahead, out of which emerged a woman with a dog. They formed a triangle at the edge of the trees. Greyhound, green Bugatti, slim, stylish woman. Her bobbed hair gleamed pale beneath an exquisitely useless aviator's hood done in putty-colored kid. Her dog's whole body strained toward the trees, yet stood as still as a hound in a medieval tapestry. Wow, it sounds great in your voice. <laughs> Uh, I could I could do a story. I could do this as a book on tape. I think it'd be interesting, <laughs> um, interesting perspective. But at the end of end of uh, uh, Tamara's life, uh, she says, "I painted uh, two in twenty-seven. Let's see, one against red, uh, one for me against green." Uh, so this is the the one that she's sort of trying to repaint again. But she's also remembering that scene from the Bois de Boulogne. Um, where she is, there's a suggestion in the book that she may have just wanted to use Raffaella as a model and sort of, uh, you know, as a, uh, you know, a work for hire. And yet, by the end of her life, recalling that day, picking her up in the Bois de Boulogne, it suggests that there was something else. Well, I think two things happen. One is regret is a very powerful force, and you don't necessarily know the best day in your life until you've long since had it. But I think also that many people get into a relationship and one person thinks they're having one kind of relationship and the other person thinks that they're having the other kind of relationship. And they go along, each one having the relationship they think they're having, until something happens which it reveals that one of them may have been wrong. And I think we've all been there. The, uh, but that's also, in a way, sort of the, sort of the larger political time, too. Uh, there was sort of belief in the Munich peace settlement, that uh, the Nazis really wouldn't invade Paris or France, and yet some realized perhaps it would be good to escape. Yes, and I have, uh, and, and Tamara was canny enough to, uh, come up, Tamara de Lempica escaped the Russian Revolution, um, kind of by the very skin of her teeth, and was canny enough to know that she was not going to go through that again, and so she uh, in as early in 19 as early as 1938 got her husband who owned the single largest um, land holding before World War one he got him to sell his land and uh, head out to New York with her what was uh, Tamara's relationship with her daughter Kizette like both in in uh, life and in sort of art in the biography that I've read it sounds like she was a doting mother until Kizet became a kind of a sexual rival and then she put as much distance between the two of them as possible and when they were reunited in LA during the war when Kizet got out of Europe uh, Tamara passed her off as her sister and then in her her elderly years she after Kizet's husband died she really kind of um, had Kizet serving her hand and foot during her the, the end of her decline in, in Cuernavaca but also didn't wasn't Kizet also a model for paintings too? When when Kizet was very young and Tamara doted on her, she she did indeed model for her. And Kizet is I is um, uh, quoted in Laura Claridge's biography as having said this was her way of 
getting to spend a lot of time with her mother was at least she would have her mother's undivided attention at that time. So everyone had an angle to work. I think so. Everybody had something they wanted. Uh, how much time did you have to spend in Paris to research this book? I lived in Paris when I was 16 years, when I was Raphaela's age, between the summer between high school and college, and I took an amazing course with Noel Riley Fitch, who wrote um, a great biography of Sylvia Beach and the Lost Generation. Uh, Sylvia Beach, who founded Shakespeare and Company in Paris and also originally published Ulysses. And I got to take this literary Paris in the 20s and 30s course with her and learn everything. And then, and so all of, for years, that, that course and the kind of explosion of, of sensual information that Paris brought with it um, stayed with me. And then in 2008, while I was working on the first draft of The Last Nude, I lived there for three months. I made sure to have a different pastry every day. <laughs> Uh, so that's like 90 different pastries. Were there, did you go to 90 different shops? No, I, I, some, some were repeat offenders. And um, I think my very favorite was a quangamon, which is a Breton delight, this flaky, caramelizing pastry that you all must try. And um, my least, but the thing is, I was trying to have a different one every day. And so I actually experienced pastry melancholy when toward the end, it was all these like, alcohol-filled marzipan-covered things. I would just like take one bite and throw it away. Like, why am I still doing this? And that was the least favorite. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and the most favorite again, how would you, what was the name? Quangamon. Quangamon. And how would you, how'd you spell that? Uh, All right, so then, <laughs> I, what did it look like? K-O-U-I-G-N-A-M-A-N. It's a, it's a, it looks like a, like a cinnamon roll, but it's like a cinnamon roll to the zillionth. And, um, and I did, and what's great is in the book, when a part of the research I did was to read Gertrude Stein's autobi autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, and she mentions the honey cakes from Fouquet that she has to eat in order to decide which Picasso to buy, which, which Impressionist painting to buy, not Picasso. Um, and it turns out that Fouquet is right across the street from where my Raffaella lives in my novel. And so she lives on this street of art dealers that also has this one lusciously smelling honey cake store across the street. What was the role of the contract between an art dealer or a patron and an artist? There's a, a, a time where uh, Tamara signs a, a contract. She signed a contract with a, with her, a patron, last name of Bucard, who was um, a, a medical researcher, made lots of money on a patent, and he, um, she had to sell any painting that she made, that she sold, she had to give him first rights to, and she also had to paint a certain number of portraits for him and his family over the course of a certain number of years. With that contract, um, she went ahead and bought herself a fabulous house that she had built for herself by Mally Stevens in um, in the 14th, which I got to see when I was in Paris. I didn't get to see the house, but I got to see the doorway to the house. It's like boring, 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 late 19th century, early 20th century townhouses. And then suddenly it's like there's this little tiny Art Deco movie theater that has been, you know, she ripped out the front, replaced it with this curvilinear, beautiful thing. And there are these two Art Deco windows that are just staring at you out of the street like eyes. It's stunning. I, I can see that you were attracted to this world and you probably wanted to go in. You didn't think about scaling the wall? <laughs> if someone had walked out of the building at the time, I would have been in there in a second. The, um, the idea of, of writing this book, and, and have, have anybody been in touch with you who, who knew Tamara in, in life to comment on it? I contacted Alain Blondel, who has the gallery that, that 
spearheaded the revival of Delembica in 1972 and asked him about certain of her paintings. And um, he, and also I checked on the pronunciation of how she pronounced her name when she was, when she was in Paris. And so I haven't gotten this, we didn't, we were, we were only in touch professionally, not about Tamara's personality, but everything I've read makes it sound like she was real, a real piece of work. We did some shows from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art at the time when there was uh, the Steins exhibit on the Impressionists. And what became very clear was that the French had no interest in the Impressionists, Picasso, anybody, until these San Franciscans, including, Alice, uh, including Gertrude Stein, uh, went there and started hosting salons and saying, we like your art, and introduced them to America. And then the French went, oh, hello. <laughs> It was a fascinating story of, of how uh, often artists in Paris uh, were ignored by the French until somebody else noticed them. I think that Delembica enjoyed two periods of fame. One at the time when she was being a portrait painter of the, you know, the, the lionized figures of her time, but then again in 1972 when, a, when the young Parisian Alain Blondeau was like, I'm going to champion this person. And then, and then only, only after that did um, she really circulate in the 70s and 80s. Jack Nicholson collects her, or collected her, Donna Karen, Madonna. It became, her work had this, had this glorious revival in the 1980s. She became the thing. She was a thing. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's, uh, the people are, are highly recognizable, quite striking. The eyes uh, in particular are, are part of the, the paintings. Did she use particular colors for the eyes? Her, she uses this kind of chromey lead color, metallic eyes for blue eyes very frequently. And it seems like she and her daughter shared that that eye color. And um, one thing I noticed was the very, very, very last painting that she made of Raffaella, the original beautiful Raffaella, her eyes are closed, and the very, very last painting, she has she's opened the model's eyes, and we don't know why. Well, that's your job. Exactly. Right. Ellis Avery, the book is called The Last Nude. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Sedge. It's a delight. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.